0: One of the best aspects of Thanksgiving and Christmas is the food, amen? Especially, especially the goodies, which got me thinking, what are some of the best Christmas and Thanksgiving desserts? Now, knowing you all as well as I do, I have no doubt that you have your own opinions on the matter. So let's take a little survey, okay? Okay. What do you think is the better dessert? Pumpkin roll or sugar cookies? Who says pumpkin roll? These are my people, sugar cookies. All right, let's try one more. Okay, what about. Gingerbread men or peppermint bark? Peppermint bark, anyone? Gingerbread men. Oh, okay. What about this? Pecan pie or chocolate truffles? Pecan pie? Chocolate truffles. This is me, chocolate truffles. <laughs> Getting hungry yet? Okay. Okay. Let's 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 change things up just a little bit. Okay, a little bit. Which is the worst <laughs> holiday dessert? Ready? Fruitcake or candy corn? Look. Okay. Look. I don't think we can be friends if you like candy corn. Okay. <laughs> It is, it is the worst. Okay. One more. One more question. One more question. Since we're talking about which is worse, here's one more question to consider, and actually has to do with our study in mm-hmm. 2 Samuel 12. And here's the question. Who committed the worst sins? Saul? Or David No, no, listen. don't get me wrong, please don't get me wrong. Both men sinned in very, very egregious ways. But whose was worse? You know what the answer is. It's David and it's not even close. Just think about it. David's sin was worse than Saul's in virtually every respect. Whereas Saul refused to listen to the prophet, Nathan, and 1 Samuel 13 and 15, David actually broke the clear commandments of God written in the Torah. Furthermore, Saul never took another man's wife And Saul's attempt to put Jonathan and David to death were unsuccessful. Modern commentators are wrong to find excuses for Saul. He was plenty good at finding excuses for himself. But the very fact that they can offer the pretense of an excuse indicates that Saul's sins can be blurred into ambiguity. No such blurring is possible with David. Adultery is adultery, and murder is murder. When you take a step back, what you quickly see is that David ingeniously committed a sin that combined all of Saul's and took them to a higher level. Level, Like Adam of old, David taking Bathsheba was the sin of taking the forbidden fruit and the sin of impatience. Friend, David's sin is worse than Saul's by a country mile. Yet notice, whereas Saul was rejected by God, David was not. And here's my question, why? How is it that David was not rejected like Saul even though he was the far greater sinner in the narrative? Well, our text this morning answers that very question. And in so doing... It also instructs us as to what we, God's people today, are to do after we sin. And Faith, please hear me. This is, it's not an overstatement to say that our text this morning, Psalm 51, it's not an overstatement to say that this passage provides essential, essential instruction for the Christian life, meaning you can't live the Christian life fully without it. So, if you haven't already, please turn within your Bibles to Psalm 51. That's page 474 in that paperback Bible, and the seat in front of you, in front of you. And as you're turning there, it would serve us well to remember what has transpired in Second Samuel 12 and 11. In what is arguably one of the darkest chapters in the Bible, 2 Samuel 11 records David's grievous sin with Bathsheba as well as the murder of Uriah and then the murder of other men to cover up that murder. And you'll recall the main point, the main lesson of 2 Samuel chapter 11 was found in the last line of that chapter. Remember this? The last line of 2 Samuel chapter 11 gives us God's perspective on the whole affair. Do you remember what that was? The last line tells us that the thing that David did what? Displeased the Lord. In fact, that was the main lesson we learned from 2 Samuel chapter 11. Sin displeases the Lord. And based on David's failure, we learned four actions that we must take in order to not fall into the same trap as David. You recall that number one, we were to guard our hearts. Let me just say by by reminder, David's sin with Bathsheba did not start in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. No, David had allowed a million concessions of sexual sin Prior to that, what we see in 2 Samuel 11 is David is reaping what he had been sowing. The lesson is we must guard our hearts against allowing those little concessions because they end up producing the fruit of egregious sin. But not only that, we learned that in light of David's failure, we were to make no provision for the flesh. Or to heed God's warning, and then as the prophet Nathan made clear, we're to cultivate thanksgiving to the Lord. These are the things that will guard us and prevent us from giving way to sin. So when we left David in 2 Samuel 11, we found him, and he was hiding and concealing his sin. So what does God do? In mercy... In 2 Samuel 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And you remember what we learned from that chapter? That text teaches this vitally important truth, and that is restoration requires confrontation. For those caught in sin, much like David, as the Apostle Paul talks about, In Galatians 6, for those that are caught in sin, in order for them to be restored, there must be confrontation, a reorienting to the truths of God's word. You'll recall how at the beginning of 2 Samuel 11, David was negligent in his role as king. Remember this? The text said this is the time when kings go out to what? War. And was David out to war? No, he was... He was being passive. He wasn't fulfilling his responsibilities as a king. But at the end of chapter 12, we see that David had been restored to his kingly responsibilities. And here's the question, how did he get there? How did he go from neglecting what he's supposed to do to being fully restored to his position? And the answer is confrontation by the prophet Nathan. And in chapter 12, we learn some valuable lessons as to how we are to confront and restore a brother or sister who is caught in sin, much like David was caught. In our confrontation, if we're going to do it biblically, we're to help them own their sin, help them grasp sin's severity, help them confess their sin, and then claim the assurance of forgiveness. But now back to the million-dollar question. How is it that God didn't reject David even though David committed the far greater sins? Let's hear from David himself. Follow along with me as I read Psalm 51. Now, uh, let me just say, to preface this, we, we could spend weeks, in this rich, beautiful, life-giving psalm. However, what I want to do is, is this morning we're primarily going to focus in on the first 12 verses, though to get the immediate context of the entire psalm, I'm going to read in its entirety. So following your copy of God's Word, notice first the heading. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he, David, had gone into Bathsheba. So this is David's response to the prophet Nathan. What does David do now, being confronted in a biblical way? We read this, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What he's he's getting at is there's his sin, he sees his sin goes down to the core. And then notice he talks about the joy of inward transformation, verse 6. He says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Verse 7 Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That's in reference to the conviction God had placed upon him. Verse 9 Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you hear the desperation in David's voice? He sees his sin. He understands its severity. God is just to judge him. He has the sin problem, and who is he crying out to to claim him? God. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This isn't in reference to salvation, but think about Saul. When he was king, what descended upon him? The Spirit. David's like, don't, don't take the Spirit away from me like you did from Saul. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O oh God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. So what does please the Lord? Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen and amen. This is God's Word. Uh, This past week, actually it's been a little bit more than a week now, our dishwasher stopped working. Good times. Good times. So what we did is, we got this out. Does anyone know what this is? Anyone? Anyone? It's a drying rack. Do any of you people have one of these wonderful drying racks at home? Ever use one of them? For those of you that have used one of these before, you know how it works. After a meal, you come over to the kitchen sink, you rinse off your dirty plate with some soap and some warm water, and then you, and you take the plate, and it's, it's all clean, and you set it here, ready to dry, right? Pretty simple right? This is why we even have our eight-year-old do it after every meal the last couple weeks, right? It's pretty simple. gets washed, and it's set in the rack to dry. If you are here this morning, and you are a Christian, think of your life like a plate, but not just any plate, but a plate that has been bought from a garage sale. You see, through his death and resurrection from the dead, Christian, please hear me, Jesus Christ has purchased for himself a people. People have put their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, just like a plate being bought from a garage sale. Christian, this means you are in possession of God. Just like I own this plate, so too God owns you. You have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. You, we could say this, you are now forever in God's house. His, you could say even His cabinet of love. If we're to continue on the, the metaphor. Nothing can separate you now that Jesus Christ has bought you and you are in His possession. That said, though, Christian, while you are in possession of God, that does not mean you cannot dirty the plate of your life with sin. You can. And indeed, every time you sin, it is as if a piece of dirt or filth piles up on your plate. And if gone unchecked, you know what this does to a person? It weighs them down. There is a heaviness in their heart. And to be honest, those that allow sin to go unchecked for a long period of time, you know how they feel? They feel filled. And perhaps that's you this morning. You are weighed down with the guilt and the shame of your sin. And it doesn't have to be a major sin like the sins that David committed, adultery or murder. It could be something like unrepentance, and unrepentant bitterness or pride. It could be jealousy or envy or lying. Whatever it might be for you, Your plate is heavy. You feel it pushing down on you. And you know this not only hinders your relationship with God, but it also hinders your relationship with others. So what are you to do? How should you respond when the plate of your life is heavy with crusty, dirty, weighed down with sin. Well, friend, I believe David tells us, and that's this, and that is, confess your sin to God to receive God's cleansing. Confess your sin to God to receive God's cleansing. This, I want to argue, is the main lesson, the main point of Psalm 51. Friend, please hear me. Far greater than the faucet at a kitchen sink God's grace and forgiveness completely cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And as plates in God's possession, when we sin, we are not to delay, but we are to go to the fountain of Christ's cleansing blood to be washed clean. And please hear me, that only happens through confession. You cannot get clean any other way. You know why? Because nothing else will work. Just ask King David. When Bathsheba got pregnant due to David's adultery, David tried to cover it up by inviting Uriah home so that hopefully Uriah would sleep with Bathsheba. But did he? No. When that didn't work... David went one step further by ordering Bathsheba's husband to fight on the front line of war so he would be killed. But you know what? Even after all that, David still was not cleansed from his sin. He still, as we read in other Psalms, he was wasting away inside. Christian, friend, please hear me when I say this. Concealing your sin does not cleanse you. denying your sin does not cleanse you. And neither does just giving your sin some time. For some reason, people tend to think that time will just cleanse us from sin. What a ridiculous thought. C.S. Lewis says it best. He says, we have a strange illusion that mere time cancels sin. But mere time does nothing either to the fact or the guilt of sin. And Lewis is right. Time does not cleanse a person of their sin. Instead, instead, you know what time does? Time does the same thing that leftover food does on a plate. It just makes it harder and more adhesive to the plate. Friend, the only thing that brings healing and cleansing to the soul that has sinned is confession to God. Not a half baked confession, but a full and transparent confession to the Lord. That's what cleanses a person. Or they're even more clean than this wiped completely clean. And that's what we have here in Psalm 51. This psalm is a model prayer of confession. It is meant to teach us how we today are to confess our sins to God. And friend, this is what distinguished David from Saul. David didn't excuse his sin, but he confessed it and repented. And Christian, we are to do the same. Not to become God's possession but because we are his possession through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So what does a biblical confession look like? Well, this morning I want to draw your attention to three aspects of a biblical confession. And here's my encouragement, okay? When I said this is essential, Christian, essential instruction, I meant I want us to not only know this like the back of our hand, I want us to practice it. Until we are with the Lord in glory, as we make our way to the celestial city, we will sin. We ought to know as God's people what we are to do right after we sin. We should know this. Our kids should know this. We should encourage each other in this church. If you sin, here's how you should respond. Here's how you should respond in your confession to the Lord. And here's the first thing I want to draw your attention to. In your confession as we're following David's model here, number one, appeal to God's mercy. Look again at the first four verses. Notice what David says. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He's appealing to the character and nature and kindness and mercy of God. And no, look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The first thing when we sin and we blow it and we go to the Lord in prayer, our first thing we need to do is to say, have mercy on me, God. We appeal to his mercy. How many of you have Alexa? Anybody have Alexa? Okay. You may not after this. Um, (laughs) 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 Several weeks ago, the BBC ran this news story. Alexa tells 10-year-old girl to touch live plug with Penny. According to the report... The suggestion came after the girl asked Alexa for a, quote, a challenge to do. And Alexa responded by saying this, quote, plug in a phone charger about halfway into a wall outlet, then touch a penny to the exposed prongs." This dangerous activity known as the penny challenge began circulating on TikTok and other social media sites several years ago. As many of you know, metal conducts what? And inserting them into a live electrical sockets can cause electric shocks, fires, and other damage. Quoting a fire station manager, the article goes on to say this, quote, The outcome from this is that someone will get seriously hurt. Now, there are many lessons we can learn from this, aren't there? (laughs) You know what the main lesson is? Some voices shouldn't be listened to. Indeed, they ought to be ignored. Faith, every time you and I sin, like Alexa, there is a voice inside us that we ought to ignore. For you know what that voice repeatedly says to us? In the face of your sin, it says, defend yourself, justify your actions. Look at what the other person did. Look at how the other people treated you. Defend yourself. Justify yourself. Yet you know what is behind this voice? Please hear me. There is a deep theology behind that inner voice. And you know what that is? It's the belief that our greatest problem is outside of us and not inside of us. Yet like with Alexa and the penny, the outcome from listening to that voice is that someone will get seriously hurt and friend that's going to be you. Notice what do we see David doing in these verses? He is not defending himself. He's not making a case to excuse his sinful actions. Indeed, instead of justifying himself, David says what? David says, God is justified in all his ways, especially in judging David. Do you see it there in verse 4? No, what we see David doing is he owns his sin, and he says, God, have mercy on me. He knows the only argument he has is to appeal to God's mercy. Because notice, how does he begin the confession? The first words are, Have mercy on me, O God. And friend, that's the only argument you have to. In your confession, come to the Lord with only one appeal, His mercy. So if our confessions are to be biblical, we need to ignore that inside voice. Indeed, what we have to do, and this requires work, is we have to leave the courtroom of our own defense and instead appeal to the mercy of the ultimate judge of the universe. And just by way of application, friend, can I ask, what do you appeal to when confronted by your sin? Do you run to the courtroom of self-defense? Yeah, but my wife, she did this. Yeah, but my husband did this. But my kids, you should have seen the kids. My boss, the traffic, the, so and so. Or do you own your sin and say, God, in that moment I have sinned, have mercy on me. So first, biblical confession, you appeal to God's mercy. But then second, you express godly sorrow. Look at verse 4 again, and then verses 15 and 16, down to 17. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In his excellent book, Finally Free, author, pastor, and counselor Heath Lambert talks about the time when a guy named Ryan came into his office, he sent his office, and he was sobbing. He wasn't just crying, but he was sobbing uncontrollably. His hands were busy wiping away oceans of tears as he confessed to Heath Lambert with his wife sitting here all his sexual sins that he tried to conceal. And his wife of 15 years was sitting next to him, and when she was sitting next to him, her face, as she heard her husband confess his sexual sins, her face looked so hard it appeared as if it had been chiseled in granite. Lambert also recounts a similar encounter with a man named Dave. He too had fallen into sexual sin. And like with Ryan, he too sat in Lambert's office sobbing as he confessed his sin. And during that time, his wife of 20 years sat next to him, hurt and hardened by his sin. Dave and Ryan do not know each other, but they have a lot in common. When their sin was made known, both men expressed, please hear me, great sorrow. Both begged for forgiveness and both swore, I'm going to change, I promise I'm changing my ways. Yet only one of them really changed. One of these men is reconciled to his wife and restored to a happy life with his family and kids. The other is now divorced from his wife and totally separated from his kids. You see, one of them was interested in real change, the other was not which one do you think changed? It's hard to tell, isn't it? Both men were heartbroken. Both were very sincere. Both displayed an apparent commitment to their family. Both appeared willing to do whatever it took to change their sinful lifestyle. But faith, in spite of their outward similarities, these two men were different as cats and dogs. Though they both displayed sorrow, their tears were drawn from two completely different wells. Faith, the Bible teaches that there's two types of sorrow there's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. One, the Bible says, leads to death. The other leads to repentance and life. We see this clearly taught, for example, in 2 Corinthians 7. Now imagine with me for a moment, imagine with me for a moment that you are deathly allergic to alcohol, okay? And one day you're very, very thirsty and you come upon two glasses of what appears to be full glasses of water. Yet one of them is water and the other one is not. The other one is vodka. And as many of you know, like water, vodka is both colorless and what else? And odorless. And you go up there, you're thirsty and you have two glasses of water and they look exactly the same. Yet one of them will kill you but the other one will satisfy your thirst and refresh you. Faith, so it is with worldly and godly sorrow. On the outside, they look the same, but only one will produce life. The other will produce death. So what's the difference between the two? friend, the issue is not whether or not a person is sad. The issue is this. What are they sad about? The focus of worldly sorrow is the world. People experiencing worldly sorrow are distressed because they are losing or they fear losing the things the world has to offer. And that could be anything. It could be a reputation. It could be a spouse. It could be children. It could be money. It could be success. It could be fulfillment it could be anything now please hear me some of these things are good and some of these things are sinful but here's the deal they're all things a sad person consumed with worldly sorrow is concerned about losing stuff no matter how honorable or dishonorable that stuff is and we've all seen this before Indeed, we've all experienced worldly sorrow. How many of us, when we were kids, and we disobeyed our parents, how many of us, when we got caught, oh, we, were, we put on the waterworks, we were so sad, we were crying, but we weren't crying because we had disobeyed our parents and in turn disobeyed God, but the sorrow that came from our face, from our heart, was because of the consequences we were going to experience. Amen? The Bible has a word for that. Worldly sorrow. I'm not... Is it on our radar that I disobeyed God by disobeying my parents? No. What I'm most concerned about, what I'm most sad about, is losing stuff or experiencing consequences. And you need to take heed, friend... This is the sorrow the Bible says that leads to death. But there's another kind of sorrow, the one the Bible calls godly sorrow, and this is precisely what we see with David, and this is what Saul did not have. And what you need to know, faith, is that although godly sorrow might look just as sad as the worldly variety, something very different is happening in the heart. You know what that is? While worldly sorrow is sad over losing the things of the world, the focus of godly sorrow is God himself. The tears of godly sorrow flow from the sadness that God's loving and holy law has been broken. And notice that's exactly what we see with David, isn't it? For what does David say in verse 4? He says, Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Please hear me. David's greatest concern, his greatest concern, is not the consequences of his sin. And remember, they were rather huge. You remember what the prophet Nathan said is going to come upon him because of his sin? They were enormous. But that's not David's greatest concern. His greatest concern is is not the consequences of his sin. No, his greatest concern was that he sinned against his God. He had godly sorrow. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson has an excellent little pamphlet on repentance. And in it, he provides this helpful insight on the difference between worldly and godly sorrow. Watson writes this. He says, Pharaoh was more troubled for the frogs and the river of blood than for his sin. Godly sorrow, however, is chiefly for the trespass against God, so that even if there were no conscience to smite, no devil to accuse, no hell to punish, yet the soul would still be grieved, because of the prejudice done to God. And friend, this is what distinguishes biblical counseling from every other form of therapy, be it secular therapy or Christian counseling. You will not hear this truth in a secular therapist's office. And I would say you most likely won't even hear this in a Christian therapist's office as well. You will only find this life-transforming truth in Scripture. And this is why Scripture must be our highest authority when it comes to soul care. Indeed, this is one of the many reasons why we at Faith We believe that the Bible reigns supreme over all other counseling and therapy models. Why? Because it alone contains, listen to me, God's solutions to man's problems, and God's solutions are best. Amen? And what I want you to see is that godly sorrow is the key to lasting change. If you're the note-taking type, I would beseech you to write this down. Godly sorrow is is the key to lasting change. Consider what the Apostle Paul writes in that passage in 2 Corinthians 7. He says this, he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings what? And then notice, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, earnestness for righteousness, What eagerness to clear yourselves, meaning to be cleansed from sin. What indignation over your sin. What alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Look at all the qualities godly sorrow produces in the life of the believer. You know what you call all those qualities jumbled together? Genuine repentance. The key to having lasting change is godly sorrow. So let's just drill down here for a moment, okay? Friend, think for a moment about that besetting sin in your life. What is it for you? What, what is it your spouse would say is that besetting sin in your life? Or your kids would say that's besetting sin in your life. Is it pride? Bitterness? Lying, jealousy, lust. What is that one besetting sin in your life? And here's my question for you. Have you ever expressed godly sorrow over that sin? Indeed, when confronted with your sin, what are you sad about? If you shed tears, from what well are those tears drawn? Is it the loss of the joy that your sin brings? Is it the consequences of your sin? Or is it the reality that you've sinned against your Savior and Lord? Friend, you want to have godly sorrow? Then look at the cross of Christ. Godly sorrow begins to be produced in our hearts from a fresh reminder of the great love and mercy that God has demonstrated towards you in Jesus Christ. It is in light of that love displayed on the cross that you truly begin to feel proper remorse for sinning against the God who died to save you and to deliver you from the bondage of sin. And if I could, I just I want to say a word to the parents here. Parents, this truth should direct the way we parent our children. When our children have sinned, let us lead them to godly sorrow. Let us help them see that when they disobey, first and foremost, they are sinning against God. They have transgressed his law of children, obey your parents. Let us help them be more broken and grieved over their sin against God than the consequences of their actions. Then lastly, in your confession, trust God's promise to cleanse you. Now these verses, 7 through 12, in many ways, as many commentators point out, this is like the Old Testament version of 1 John 1, 9, where John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Look at, especially there, verse 7, when he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. In the original Passover, God instructed Israel to take the branch of a hyssop, the very thing we see described here in verse 7, and to dip it in the blood of a spotless lamb and then to paint it on the doorposts. And because, because of the blood of the lamb, Israel would be spared the angel of death, right? Well, notice what we see happening here. Notice David understands that same blood to purify and cleanse him from his sin, to wash him, as he says, whiter than snow. Ultimately, though, it would be the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that can make any sinful heart whiter than snow. Therefore, just as David trusted the blood of a sacrificial lamb to cleanse him, we are called to trust the blood of Jesus Christ, that when God says he'll forgive us, he forgives us. Amen? By way of application, can I ask friend, do you believe that? Do you believe God's word when he says that when we confess our sins? Do you believe that when your plate is dirty with the sin of pornography... When it's dirty with the sin of gossip, when it's dirty with the sin of lying and deceit, and you go to God and in your confession you appeal to his mercy, you express godly sorrow that you've sinned first and foremost against him, do you believe him when he says, I forgive you and you are clean? Do you? Do you believe the promise of his word? What an incredible promise that it is that in our confession he does clean us from the inside out. And then do you live in light of it? You know, this is one of the things that makes God, God. Whereas our friends and family members might not not fully forgive us, God does, amen? Let's live in light of that. Cal Ripken is a Hall of Fame baseball player, and he holds the record for the most consecutive baseball games played at 2,131 games. So for, he played that many games in a row. And when you consider the fact that he played shortstop, a middle infielder, it's even more impressive. Well, towards the end of his career, he was interviewed about his consistent play. And during the interview, the reporter said, Well, I guess, I guess as they say, practice makes perfect. And Ripken said, No, it doesn't. <laughs> and the interviewer was kind of up against his heels. And Ripken looked at him and they said, No. He says, Practice does not make perfect. He says, Perfect practice makes perfect. And faith, he's right. May we be a church that practices not just confession. But biblical confession, both for our good and God's glory. Amen? Let's pray.